0: It's great to see you, Providence, and it's always a joy to worship the King with you. I hope you've had a good week. If you're a guest with us, whether you're in this room or, uh, or at home, uh, you may be at the beach, uh, you may be at a lake, I don't know where you're at, but uh, we're uh, thrilled that you're here, if you're in this room or um, some other room. But it is great to see you. I want to ask you, if you would, to turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter one uh, it 's going to be just a little bit before we read it, but uh, but if you want to go ahead and turn there uh, in your Bible, if you uh, don 't have one with you, there uh, should be uh, one in the seat near you and if you don 't have it at home, please take that home with you. We would love for you to have your own copy of the Bible um, on a um, on a weekend uh, when we celebrate the uh, amazing freedoms that we enjoy in our own country because of of, of, of grace because of sacrifice. Uh, we also confess uh, gladly that uh, we are very dependent on the Lord and, um, and, and His grace and His mercy. And He's done an amazing thing in each of our life, and He's called us to talk about it. So, over the next five weeks, uh, this week and four more here in July, what we want to do is to walk through a series. It's called Planning the Gospel, all right? and it's birthed out of a vision. To see 1,000 of us who call Providence home, adult members who already claim to believe in Jesus Christ for 1,000 of us to be sharing the gospel with enough frequency in our life uh, that we have the privilege to lead one person to faith in Jesus Christ sometime in the next three years and to then walk with them and help them to grow so that they can make disciples and they can share The gospel and their faith with someone else as well. You see, an amazing thing happens when a new believer enters into your life, and that is that you get renewed. It's like going down uh, to a big theme park, let's just say Disney World, right? It's like going there with a child as opposed to going there with a grown up, okay? Like If it's just you and a grown-up and you go to Disney, the most natural thing to do is to complain about the parking, is to complain about the pricing, is to complain about the waiting, is to talk about the different elements that you see that lack the necessary realism in, in true life. And then you naturally just think, you know, things were a lot better around here when Walt was still alive, you know? This is what adults do when they go alone, all right, and they just talk about the things and they just naturally, we just kind of look at it through that different lens. But if you go with a child, all of a sudden things are are very, very different because a child, when they go to Disney World, they don't look at the pricing and they don't look at the parking and they don't look at the lack of realism and they don't know who Walt is. What they do is they see a place that's full of wonder. And here's the cool thing. If you go with a child, you inadvertently begin to look at things and see things and experience things through the lens of a child because you're rooting for that child to be able to enjoy all that they possibly can. And so you end up naturally seeing some of the wonder and the creativity of a park. Now, I tell you all that in order to say this, the same thing happens when you spend time with a new believer. You see, they come into a place that you and I, we've seen, we've experienced, the songs, the, the sounds, the sights, what it's, what it's like. And for you and I, it's very natural for us to just begin to take it for granted. We're accustomed to it. And all of a sudden you have a new believer and they come and they're sitting next to you, right? And all of a sudden you're listening to the songs and to the sermon. And and you are walking through next steps and the lobbies and life groups and different events. And you're experiencing things now through their lens. And what it does is it not only creates a sympathy and engagement in your hearts and my heart. What it also does is we start to see The simple, amazing things that we take for granted because we see them through their lens. I just want you to think about this for a second. Just imagine how providence will feel different if a thousand new believers in three years' time, a thousand new believers were sitting in these seats with us. What life groups would feel like? the stories, what worship would sound like, what it would feel like, to be engaged with that much new energy. And this is what God's plan is. You see, God's God's, God's instructions, they're clear, aren't they? I mean, we we all understand what we're supposed to be doing. After Jesus died and rose again, he says, guys, listen to his followers. He says, all authority has been given to me. And then he gives us a simple commission. He says, therefore, go. And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. You see, our problem is not fuzzy directions, is it? The fact is, though, is that anytime this happens anywhere in America, anywhere in the world, really, is that anytime you begin a series on sharing your faith, it immediately causes a sense of angst among people who are listening. And I suppose that there's, that there's natural reasons for this. Okay, here this morning, I think there's two. Number one is there may be some of you who don't know Christ. Not everyone has faith to share. And if we just want you to know that if you are not a Christian, we are really, really glad that you came. And you know, probably that we as a church, we as the people of God, we've not always been as winsome or gentle or respectful as we should be in what we want to be. And so we're taking some really deliberate time this summer just to look at it in order to sharpen our skill and to help us to become more sensitive in that. But it's also true, though, that as believers, the idea of sharing our faith, it really creates some pretty strong emotions. Like for most of us, we're like, yeah, it'd be really, really great if a thousand people actually did this, so long as I'm not one of them, right? Because that just causes... Some strong emotions. What are those strong emotions? Well, most of the time it's fear and guilt. It really is a sad thing that throughout the New Testament, anytime the Bible talks about us sharing the gospel, it's always supported on the front and the back by a command or an instruction that says, don't be afraid. Fear God more than man. God knows that it's natural for us to feel afraid. You see, we, we, I think, fear rejection. I think we fear the 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 cultural intolerance to the exclusive claims of Jesus and so we know that Jesus says I am the way the truth and the life and no one comes to the father except through me and the thought that we would go out into a culture that 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 that, that actually says the only sin is to be intolerant to everybody else and we think I'm afraid of that I think we fear Saying the wrong thing, or we fear messing up or not knowing enough if they ask us questions, I think we also fear the um, the uh, unappealing associations with other believers who've shared the gospel in ways that we wouldn 't feel comfortable, like the big church of God, like all the people who trust God, you know like it 's like a family well just like in your family, every family has that uncle right it 's got it 's got you know just some some Little people that aren't quite like us, but we love them and and, and, and the fact is, is there's people who really love Jesus and they try to share the gospel in ways that many of us would not feel comfortable. And so the fact that when we go out into the culture and we share the gospel, we may fear an unappealing association with people that we don't really want to be associated with. And all this causes fear. And what this does is it causes guilt. You see, the fact is that 95% of all the believers in America have never led anyone to faith in Christ. Why don't you think about that for a second? What that means is that in our church, we would be no different. 95% of the people who call Providence their home have never had the privilege to lead someone to faith in Christ, even though that is the last thing Jesus told us to do. We're going to be held accountable for that. And we know that, right? So as we open up the Bible and we look at Matthew chapter 10 and Jesus says, whoever acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown before my father in heaven. All of a sudden I'm like, oh, I'm terrible. I'm a terrible believer. Please, God, give me grace. I hate doing this. We don't even like to think about it because it creates guilt. We have guilt because we have fear. We have guilt because of missed opportunities. This week I had several opportunities to share the gospel with people that, just in life. And there were some of them that went well, and there were some of them that just either because of fear or because I just couldn't figure out the way to move from that conversation to talking about spiritual things because I was afraid of how they were going to respond or what someone else in line was going to be thinking. I just I'm not going to do it. And I left. I'm like, man, I probably should have done that. And so what I want you to know is over the next five weeks, I'm not going to come with a rod. We're not going to come with a rod. We're going to come with great sympathy and hope that God is going to do something within us. You see, if you have the Holy Spirit in your heart, as I have in my heart, then we have the power within in order to do supernatural things. And God literally can use us. He can use you, you. Think about that. He can use you. To lead someone to faith in Jesus Christ. You see, there is one other really strong emotion that I pray will be the propellant, the fuel to our endurance in sharing the gospel. And that strong feeling is joy. You see, in all the opportunities that I had this week that, that I thought, ah, didn't quite go. I had four opportunities where I got to share part or all of the gospel. And you know what was the coolest thing is, 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 is as we finished, and I'm driving away. Or In each case, I, I got a sense of John chapter 16, verse 8, when Jesus says, when the Holy Spirit comes, he's going to convict you of sin and righteousness and judgment. Now, all of us know what it's like to feel conviction of sin, right? It feels bad. <laughs> but we also know what it's like to feel his conviction of righteousness. And what that is... It's when the Holy Spirit within us confirms his pleasure in what we're doing. And you know what? There is an amazing joy that's associated with telling people about Jesus that the New Testament even attests to. Philemon verse 6 says, I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Do you see what that's saying? It's saying without the sharing of our faith, we will not discern every good thing that's available to us in Christ. And so joy really is possible. What I want to do right now, I want to pray and just ask the Lord to overcome a lot of our fears and guilt and help motivate us and enthuse us, even with this passage here. So if you would, let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for saving us, for loving us. And I pray, Father, that you would give us belief as we read, that you would inspire us with a picture of what we see here in Paul's story and what he, what you did in his life, God, would you help us to see. And I pray, God, that you would do a miracle. Never in the history of Providence has been a thousand people trust Christ. Never in the history of Providence, a thousand different believers at Providence led someone to faith in Christ. And we're asking that you would do that in the next three years. We know that's a miracle. Unless you move, that's not going to happen. I know that. We know that. And so we come to you and ask that you would you help us to be bold? Would you help us to be faithful? Would you help us to be humble? And would you give us power to be able to see the supernatural take place? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, I have never baked a cake from scratch, but I've been told, right, that what you do is you gather some ingredients. You gather flour and you grab some, some, some sugar and some butter, some shortening and some vanilla and some eggs and some baking powder, things like this. You stick it in a bowl. And the fact is that any one of those ingredients by itself is not tasty at all. But, but like a miracle takes place in the bowl. When you mix all that together and you add heat, all of a sudden life turns really, really good for a little bit. It's an amazing thing. And it's very similar to sharing the gospel. You see, the Bible talks about ingredients. Ingredients. Different things that are necessary to make our witness more effectual, more potent in our culture. And so over the next five weeks, we're going to look at those five ingredients. Each one of these, by themselves, they lack the power that's necessary. But you add them all together and all of a sudden God can do things to shape the world. And these five are this. we want to, first of all, we want to remember clearly. That's what we're going to look at right now. Next week, we're going to look at living authentically. Praying faithfully. We want to care personally and then share lovingly. Now, the one ingredient that we want to look at today is very similar to wind. Wind. You see, you can't grab the wind, but if it's there, you can see its effect. And that is this ingredient of remembering God's grace in our own lives. If you were here last week, when we looked at Jonah, he forgot about God's grace in his own life. And as a result of that, he became very apathetic to people who were lost very unforgiving, very stingy with what God had given to him. And so what we find here in this little book, this little passage we're going to read right now, is you have Paul, he's about six years removed from having his head cut off as a martyr for Jesus. He's not in prison right now, but he hears that that his buddy, his son in the faith, his name is Timothy. He's a pastor. He's a young pastor. He's really discouraged. He's beat down. He's tired. He wants to quit. This whole sharing the gospel in places that are hard. He's like, enough. And so what Paul does as he comes to him, and what he does in, in chapter 1, is he demonstrates how ministry, how sharing our faith, is to come from an overflow of remembering where Christ found us, how Christ saved us, And how Christ sent us. So let's look at it together. Starting in verse 12. He says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus, our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and it deserves full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So what is it that we need to remember clearly? The first thing is this, is that Jesus loves us in our brokenness. And this is one of those gifts. He doesn't just tolerate us. He loves us. I want you to notice how Paul starts. He says, I thank God him i thank him now sometimes the bible not, not sometimes every time it's really good to read the bible creatively now i don't mean that you create add, and add words to it right so that it, what i mean is this is that as you read it you start thinking in your mind what must it have been like for paul to actually sit down and write this down what was happening in his life what was he feeling how did Timothy feel when he first received it, when he opened it up, when he tore into it and said, oh, this is from Paul. Let me read it. What must they have been feeling? You see, Paul was, um, was writing. And just like you've written, there's times when you know what you're about to write, like the next three or four sentences. And you're like, you know what? And all of a sudden that creates an emotion in you before you've even penned one of them down. It make sense. So what Paul is saying is this, I thank him. And his gratitude is coming from what he's about to write. He's about to be, he is overwhelmed because of what he's about to tell Timothy. And this is an amazing thing. He says, I thank him. Literally, if you actually look at the Greek, what it says is this, is I am having thanksgiving for him. I am having thanksgiving to him. You see, there's a difference between being thankful and saying thank you, isn't there? We all know this. If you have a kid, or if you ever been to a kid's birthday party, kid opens up the first gift and he's like, wow, look at this. I got okay, cool. He sets it aside and he grabs the next gift. And the parent goes, Um, Junior, what what should you say to little Billy over there who gave you that? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now we're not trying to create moralists out of our kids, all right? But but isn't it true that Oftentimes, we're training people to say thank you, even though they're not thankful. Now, as parents, we're not trying to do that. What we're trying to do is to instill in them patterns of behavior, that when someone does something kind to you, the natural thing you do next is you say thank you. But what Paul is saying here is this. Not only am I saying I thank him, I am thankful. I am having thanksgiving to God. And this is why, because once I was a blasphemer, I denied Christ and I opposed Christ's claims. And not only that, once I was a persecutor. In other words, I tried to get other people to deny Christ and to oppose Christ's claims. And I was an insolent opponent, literally a violent man who opposed Christ. We see this as Paul continues to write, even, even in his letters. And then there's an account from Luke and he writes in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 22, verse four, where Paul says, I persecuted the way to the death. Now, what's the way Jesus says, I am the way to the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. And so in the early days of Christianity, to be a Christian was to be a part of the way. So what Paul was saying is, look, there was a time that I persecuted the way to the death, binding and delivering to prison, both men and women. This is who I was. And then he tells us why he says, all this took place because I was acting ignorantly in unbelief, ignorantly in unbelief. Just imagine that you're at a art gallery and there's these, priceless paintings on the wall. They're all within frames. And somebody accidentally leaves a little red crown on the ground. And there's a little boy who walks over and he picks it up and he goes, you know what, I want to draw too. And it looks like from everything that I see that the best place to draw is inside the frame. No one's drawing on the walls. Everyone's drawing inside the frame. And so I'm just going to go over and I'm going to go draw inside the frame. We go, oh, you acted ignorantly. You didn't know. And this is what Paul's saying. This is what he's saying goes, the reason that I was a blasphemer, a persecutor and an insolent man is because I did not see the incomparable value, the priceless treasure of Jesus. I looked at him and I couldn't see treasure. I just saw trash. I could see I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And now more than 20 years have passed since all that took place. And now Paul is writing first Timothy in 20 years. He's still vividly remembering who he was before Christ and how Christ loved him and even spared him when he was still in that condition. There's something that remembering where we were is good for where we're going. And so providence, let's remember our life before Christ. This is the application for this first point. Let's remember our life before Christ. I would encourage you, not maybe even right now, but sometime today, think about what life was like. What were you thinking? How were you feeling? What were you missing in the days before Jesus saved you and forgave you of your sin? You see, I can tell you my testimony. My testimony was my dad was a pastor. And so where I was before I came to faith when I was 16 years old, was for 16 years, or at least many of those years, I saw that Jesus, just like Paul, I was painting on it. I looked at Jesus and I said, I just don't see the big deal. I thought he was inconsequential. Yeah, he saves me, he died, he lived. All right, whatever. That's where I was. And then Jesus, in Luke chapter 15, he tells a little parable about two different sons to describe the whole human race. He says, basically, we all fit into one of two categories. We're either... Religious and we stay close to home, but we 're really far from God, or we 're irreligious, and we run away from home and we 're really far from God in both cases we 're very far from God and i was I was the son that stayed close to home. You see, my dad was a pastor, and so it just it, it, it was rewarding when you 're in the church to be good because everyone thinks highly of you and the fact is is there was tremendous amount of anxiety hopelessness and emptiness in my heart. And the only thrill were when people thought much of me. And so I lived my whole life trying to make people think much of me. And in the circle that I was in, what that meant was I needed to be good. People like good around here. So I'll be good. And then I'll be praised for being good. And so I tried to be good morally. And I tried to be good in sports. And I tried to be good in school. And you know what? I kind of was. And I was so empty. I think back on those days like I was caught in candy, that it looks all big, and yet it's just full of hot air, just a little bit of drop of water, and all of a sudden it can reduce the whole existence down to just a few grains of sugar. That's where I was. People look and go, Wow, but I was so judgmental and I was critical. It was not pleasant, and I was not pleasing to others that's where I was, that he saved me out of that. And you see, remembering where we were, it makes us thankful. And isn't it true that thankfulness is pleasant to be around? Have you ever been near somebody that just didn't matter what happened in their life, they just couldn't say thank you because they just assumed it was all deserved? It's really hard to be around somebody like that. But isn't it amazing how appealing it is to be around somebody that just every good thing in their life, they say thank you. Thank you so much for giving me a seat. Well, there's a bunch of them. Okay. Thank you, though, that you made one available to me. It just—it just so pleasant. Listen, it's very effectual to the people in the world when they see believers as being thankful, amazed at God's kindness. And the reason that we can be thankful is because we can look back and go, this is what he's done in my life. And the fact is, though, is not everyone here can recall those days. And so what I would encourage you to do is this. If you cannot remember with vividness what your life was like before Christ, then open up your Bible and read what God remembers about your life before Christ. He remembers perfectly. He knows what that relationship was like perfectly. And he wrote down some verses so that you would be reminded of what he knew we were like before coming to faith in Christ. Let me just show you two of them. There's a bunch of them. Let me just show you two. Ephesians 2.1 says that you and I, we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked. What that means is this, that God came up to us and he goes, you know, before my son saved you, I would poke you spiritually and I'd prod you and you wouldn't even move. I'd send people to do good to you, to speak to you, to encourage you, and you would just rebuff all of it. You were dead. You weren't in like a doghouse. You were in the morgue. You weren't in the doghouse where you can whimper and moan and make goals and apologize and look up real sad like. You did none of that. The reason is because you didn't even care about me. God says, this is how I remember my relationship with you before my son forgave you. This is what we were like. Titus chapter 3 verse 3 is another one. This one gets really descriptive. He gives us Categories. He says, we ourselves are once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Now you look at that and you go, wow, that's that's a bad list. It is. And God says, you know what? This is what I remember. This is what I remember seeing. And I still loved you anyway. I still cared for you deeply. You see, our lives, they all look a little different, but these are the categories. He says that we were once foolish. A fool is someone who gives their feelings final authority. And anytime you give your feelings final authority, you make decisions that you regret. Our decisions were all different, but we all have ones that we regret, right? We were all foolish. He says that we were all disobedient. We did things that we weren't supposed to do. We knew it. We were led astray. That means we were gullible. Sin or temptation or people who weren't who were also foolish to say, hey, let's come do this. you are like, well, okay, maybe that'll make me happy. We were led astray. He says that we we were slaves to passions and pleasures. Literally, we were trained, chained to our appetites. Our body says, Feed me more, we'd eat more. Let me sleep more. We'd let it sleep more. Give me more sex, and we'd give it more sex. We were slaves, he says. I, this next phrase is interesting. It says, passing our days in malice and envy. When I see the word passing our days, I think of like two old guys sitting in front of a lake in Rockers. and like, well, we can't really do much today, but we do need to pass this day away. So what should we do? You know? And God says, this is how I remember your days. You were mean to people. And when you saw blessing in their life, you wanted that blessing for yourself. You were envious. You passed your days looking at what everyone else had and not what I've already given you. And he says, and as a result of that, our relationships were broken and there were hatred toward each other. Now you think, gosh, that's really, really terrible. It is. And God says, look, if you forget about where I found you, God says, I didn't forget. And if this is really where we were at and where God saw that we were at, You can look at that and you go, but now look what he's done. And that should, should stir a measure of gratitude within our hearts. And so be encouraged, friends. Jesus loves us in our brokenness. Not only back at that day, but even sometimes now when we still act broken. The second thing we need to clearly remember is that Jesus saves us from our sinfulness. Look at the phrases that Paul uses. He uses mercy and grace. I receive mercy. He says that twice. And the words I receive mercy, what it means is this. Mercy is to not get what you do deserve. I deserve to be nailed to a cross. But I'm not nailed to a cross. He was nailed to the cross for me. That's mercy. I deserve judgment, but I'm not going to get that judgment. I deserve wrath, but I'm not going to get that wrath. And Paul looks and he goes, I can't believe this. I deserved all of that. And I'm not going to get any of it. I thank God for mercy. But then look at verse 14. I think it's stunning, the words that he uses. He says, "And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me. You see the word for, for me? I actually underline the word for in my Bible. And this is why. Because if I was writing it, I would naturally write the grace of our Lord overflowed to me. The word for means that there was something that stood against us in between his grace and us, and God did something to overflow that thing, that problem that we had, so that I could draw near to him. He did something for us, and this was the problem. Standing between us and God, there was not only a law that was the unbiased, unemotional witness about our sinfulness, but there was also a guilty verdict. And it was accurate. The verdict said this person has sinned and it's true. And there's nothing that we could do to atone for that. There's nothing that we could do to actually bridge that gap. And so what he says here is this, is that before I did anything, I wasn't looking up to God like a sad puppy saying, please save me. I wasn't praying to him. I wasn't doing anything except opposing him and blaspheming him. Putting people who loved him in prison. He goes into that moment, the grace of God overflowed for me. And Jesus Christ came to this earth and he lived a righteous life. And then he went to the cross to pay for our sin. He died there, he was buried, he rose from the dead. And when he rose from the dead, he said, now anyone who would believe in me, I will forgive them of all of their sin. I will give them my righteousness and I'll change the verdict. The grace overflowed for us so that what stood in between us was no longer there. You see, this is good news, Providence. This is, it's stunning that He would save us from our sin. You see, none of this is trivial. You see, the seriousness of an insult rises in proportion to the dignity of the one that we insult. And God is perfect in every way. He's also just and loving, and it's a good thing. For if God were not just, there would be no demand for Christ to die. But he did, because he is just. And if God were not loving, there would be no willingness for Christ to die. But he is loving, and so he did die. And this is why Paul, he culminates, and he goes, Look, this is the saying that's trustworthy and it deserves full acceptance. Christ came into this world to save sinners. And then he looks at himself, and he goes, and I'm the foremost. If this is the case, then providence, let's remember how Jesus saved us. I want to encourage you to take a moment. We've already done this in the service, just to remember when God saved us, but it's helpful. Oh, how did God do it? Who was in your life? Who shared the gospel with you? You see, it's important to remember those days, because if you can remember those days, it creates gratitude in our heart and enthusiasm that God can do it in someone else's life through us. This is why Paul, the same Paul writes in Ephesians chapter two, verse 12, he says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. Now I want you to think about this sort of crazy story. Let's just say that we're in a car, you're in a car by yourself and you don't know it, but there's a bomb in your trunk. It's set to go off and you don't even know it's there. You are in peril. And the police, they're made aware that there's a bomb there. And because they love you, they say, you know what? We need to chase them down or her down. And we need to to protect them. We need to rescue them. And so all of a sudden, they turn their lights on and they start driving after us. Well, because we have a guilty conscience, we all do, because we're all fallen. That's why when you first see police lights, you don't think, oh, good, public servants ready to help me right? You think, oh no, what did I do wrong? And so you look back into your mirror and you see the lights and you go, oh man, what did I do wrong? And for whatever reason to stay, you get, "Uh, I'm not stopping. And all of a sudden you just hit the gas and you're flying down the road, right? Because maybe you'll lose them. Well, well, the police, they like care so much about you. They say, you know what? We, We, we just have to do it anyway. And so they, so they chase you down. All of a sudden you have to stop and They run to the car and they grab you. They take you over to a field. And just when you get over there, when you're in safety, your car blows up. And now all of a sudden, several years back, and you're like, you know, I remember the chase. And this is what Paul's saying. He's saying, believers, it is good to remember the chase. When Christ changed your life, when he broke through all of the unbelief, When he broke through all of the opposition, when he broke through all of the arguments that he had, when he broke through all your love for sin, it's good to remember that chase. For unless we feel a great need for a Savior, we will not feel he is a great Savior. See, providence in Christianity, whatever fails to spring from overflow will not spring for long. This is why Jesus says, abide in me. The most natural thing for a branch to do when it's abiding to the vine is to bear fruit. And the most unnatural thing for a vine to do, a branch to do, if it's not connected to the vine, is to bear fruit. So he says, abide. Everything in Christianity, every instruction is based on the idea of overflow. Overflow. That something happens within and it spills out of our heart. And so carve out some time every day to strengthen your witness by remembering his salvation in your life. Are you happy that you're saved? I mean, like, really, it, Providence, are we delighted that we have been delivered you see i can guilt you into giving your waitress a track this afternoon but unless there is an overflow of the heart where jesus is living and reigning we will not be a people who love to talk about our faith and so we must remember clearly last thing is that jesus sends us as his witnesses we need to remember this Paul says this, I receive mercy for this reason so that in me, the foremost sinner, Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe. What he's saying is this. He's saying, guys, if God can save me, a persecutor and a blasphemer, then he can save anyone. And if he can save anyone, then I need to tell everyone, You see, if you know Christ as your savior, you have a story that's powerful in two different directions. One is your story is powerful to remember to stir up your heart. It's like a kid's volcano project for a science fair. Everything is put together It needs one ingredient. And you add that one ingredient, all of a sudden things explode. It's the same thing with our heart. You have a story that when you think about that story, it's one more ingredient that allows joy and thanksgiving to well within the heart and spill out the mouth. And this is exactly what happens in Paul, right? He, he says, look, I'm so thankful. And then he writes where God found him, how God saved him, how God sent him. And then what does he do in verse 17? It spills out of his mouth. And all of a sudden he starts praising God. He says to the only God, the God of all ages, the one who's immortal and invisible, the only true God, He's giving an example of exactly what happens when we get excited about our story. But there's another thing that our story can do and that it can provide a bridge. You see, our story is not the destination. It's simply the bridge to his story. If we go out sharing the gospel, you're going to find people that want to debate the facts, the truths that you claim. But you will not find people that want to debate your story. And I would simply encourage you this. Don't embellish your story to make it compelling. You know, we all hear these amazing testimonies like, wow, my testimony is boring compared to them. I I need to add some detail. I need need to add a a few significant problems in my life that weren't there so that people will really be impressed with Jesus. Now, listen to me. Somebody who is lost today has a similar story to yours and they need to hear how the Savior can save them. So don't embellish it. Just tell him your story so that you can tell his story. And so two applications that we're going to sing. The first is this. This is to believers. Is let's write out our story that leads to his story. Our team, led by Dave Owen, actually put together a five-day devotional. Five days for this week. We want to ask you. They're on the, they're, they're, they're out back. Next steps. And you just pick one of these up. You go through it five. And then on day six and seven. Actually, it's just day six. But. You have two days for it. At the very end, it, it's just a little thing you can fill out, a few questions that help you write your story. Now, it doesn't have to be long. And the reason I know that is because Paul got it done in six verses. Okay? We read his entire testimony. You can read it in about 35 seconds. Okay? So we're not really looking for a like a novel or, or, or anything like that, right? Just write your story so that you get familiar with it. And then this is what I want to ask those of you who are life group leaders. I want to ask you to devote some time sometime this month in your life group to provide people in your life group in a safe environment the opportunity to share their story with everyone else or with just a few people, maybe in smaller groups, whoever would be willing to do so. And practice telling your story. Practice. The last application is for those who don't know Christ and we would simply commend you. Let's trust Christ as Savior. See, if you have never had your sins forgiven, that can take place today. You trust him and he will forgive you and he will save you and he will rescue you. We as a church family, I'm the one who has a microphone attached to my head, but every single one of us who have had our sins forgiven, by Jesus Christ, would say to you today in affirmation, look to Jesus Christ and you too can be forgiven of your sin. So let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for your kindness to us. Thank you for your mercy that you pour out to us. And thank you, God, that we have the opportunity. We have the opportunity to hear the gospel. We know there's some 2 billion people in the world who are waiting for us to go tell them. And we pray, Father, that you would Help us to be grateful, grateful to remember back of where you found us and how you saved us and how you've sent us. And I pray, Father, that you would use this, you would use your word just to spark an enthusiasm in our heart this week to think about what you've done in our life and to be inclined to wanna tell other people about what you've done in our life. As we sing to you and as we give out of what you have given to us now, we do so as worship, you're worthy of it. And I pray that you would take these resources and you would maximize them and mobilize them Lord, to help the gospel go forth to the ends of the earth. We love you, we need you and we pray this in Christ's name, amen.